you can probably identify some difficult people in your life. Pastor Ed Taylor has a suggestion for you. You're surrounded with some really difficult people in this room. Did you know that? Give me an amen, because you're the difficult person I'm talking about, <laughs> myself included. We, we are men and women prone to sin, stumbling and falling, and it's a mess. And we need to learn by the grace of God to make room for the messes of others and to actually, God's calling some of you to step right into the difficulty of someone else. Not to stand there with some uh, hand of prejudgment or to look down on someone, but rather to give a brother a hand and help a sister up in the difficulties of their life. This is amazing grace. The amazing grace of Jesus, our great high priest, is not an excuse to sin. It's the remedy, but it does raise a few questions. How do we deal with sin or respond to failure? And how do we mature and keep maturing? Well, we'll get some answers today on abounding grace. Those answers are found in Hebrews chapter 5, a scripture that not only tells us about one who understands our struggles, but can help us to grow. That's Jesus, of course, and it's what makes him a better high priest. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor. Take your Bibles, open them to two places, would you? Hebrews chapter 5, as we start a new chapter today, and Leviticus chapter 16. And for some of you, it's a very exciting day, because for some of you, this will be the first time you study verse by verse through a chapter in Leviticus because that's what we're going to do. In order to understand the significance of what Paul is writing to the Hebrew believers, we need to understand the foundation that's given to us in the book of Leviticus. And the title of my Bible study today is The Role of the High Priest. The Role of the High Priest. Because remember, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish believers that are being tempted to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism. They're being tempted to leave the reality of a real relationship with Jesus Christ and go backwards to the shadows of Judaism, of religion. And so what does the author do? The author says, you've got to keep your eyes firmly focused on Jesus because he is superior and greater than anything you would want to go back to, especially religiously. We've already learned in our few chapters that we've studied that Jesus is the greater word, that Jesus is the greater than the angels, greater than the prophets, greater than the law, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the Sabbath. We even learned that Jesus himself personally is our true and real rest, that he is our Sabbath. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's greater. And now beginning in chapter 5, for many chapters, 
we're going to learn how Jesus is the greater high priest. He is the final high priest, greater than any of the men that have come before him because Jesus is God in human flesh. We've already been introduced to Jesus as high priest. We learn in chapter 2 that he's a compassionate high priest. We learn in chapter 4 that he's the key to holding fast. In chapter 4, we learn that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. We learn that he provides access to the very throne room of God. He is the greater high priest. Notice with me now in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is beset by weakness. Now, God is the one who appointed the priesthood in the Old Covenant. When God gave the law, you'll remember, to Moses, when Moses ascended the mount, Mount Sinai, God is the one himself that instituted the priesthood. And he gave precise instructions of where the priest would come from. The priest would, would have to come through the family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, and then the family of Kohath, because Levi had three sons. And they were all responsible for taking care of the tabernacle. Now, those of you that are Bible students, you know that God instituted this place of worship known as the tabernacle. It was a temporary tent structure that they could fold up and take with them as they would move on. And then when they'd settle, they'd set the tabernacle up, put it the holy and holies, and they would go in. And that represented the very place that God said he would meet with his people. And then the tabernacle was replaced with the building of a more permanent structure of what is known as the Temple Mount today, the temple. And today, if you go to the Temple Mount, if you have the privilege of coming to uh, Israel with us, uh, we'll take you to the Temple Mount, and you'll notice today there is no temple there. There are two big buildings there, one with a big golden dome. They're both reserved for Islamic worship, but there's no temple, which is fascinating in and of itself because we know, according to the Bible, that the temple will be rebuilt. And one of the places we'll take you when you visit Israel with us, right at the end of the trip, we'll take you to a place in Jerusalem known as the Temple Institute. And in the Temple Institute, these guys are ready for the rebuilding of the temple because God said the temple is going to be rebuilt, and it will. Now, they desire to be a part of this, so they've got all the clothing, they've got all the instruments, they have everything ready so that when the temple is, is there, they've even identified the lines of people that will be in their taking care of all of the worship. They're ready. Now, they're not ready there uh, because Messiah has come. They still have blinders on thinking Messiah will come. And it's a fascinating experience to hear their presentation, to hear where they came from. But back with Moses, God himself instituted the priesthood. And so Levi had three, three sons, and their families were responsible in different places in the place of the tabernacle and the temple for worship. His first son was named Gershon, and he was responsible to take care of the tabernacle veil, the fence, the curtains, according to Numbers chapter 3. His second son, Merari, and his family was responsible for the boards and the pillars and this infrastructure. His son, Kohath, his family was responsible for all of the worship inside of the tabernacle. 
and the high priest would come through the family of Kohath, and we refer to this often in a couple different ways. Sometimes we refer to it as the Levitical priesthood, and other times you might hear it referred to as the Aaronic priesthood, and there's still yet one more priesthood that we're going to be introduced to in Hebrews, and, and so it's going to take some time as we develop it, but that's the priesthood through Melchizedek, and we'll get to that soon enough. But for, day, for today, I want you to put on your Bible study seatbelts, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to come back, if you want to turn there with me, to Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to walk through this institution of the responsibility and role of the high priest and what God said specifically for him to do and what is his responsibility. So Leviticus chapter 16, and we'll pick up right there in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at simply any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus, verse 3, Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram and a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers of his body, and he shall gird himself with the linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments, and therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take them from the congregation of the children of Israel, two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. So those are very precise instructions to ritualistically cleanse, to put on special garments, to take special animals. This is what he's to do. Aaron is the high priest. He's to come in the way that God prescribes, which reminds us today that God is the one that dictates the terms of relationship with us, with you and me. You could say it today. You just can't worship God any old way you want to. You can't, or we might even translate that in today's language. You can't just do your own thing. You, you, you know, and that's a really hard thing to hear in a culture like ours because we have been taught very strongly this sense of self-independence, that, that we are independent and that in some ways we've learned that the world seems to revolve around us, but it doesn't. By faith in Jesus Christ, your world and mine doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around him, the Son, not S-U-N, but S-O-N. And he prescribes like a good doctor, exactly what's needed for strong spiritual health in our relationship. And so when it came to worship, the children of Israel just couldn't worship any old way they wanted to. They just couldn't do their own thing. They couldn't just do what they wanted to do. But this was the way that God desired. Now it's interesting, isn't it? In the first verse, it speaks about these two sons of Aaron. Would you turn back to chapter 10 in Leviticus? We're gonna learn about these guys. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. Notice what they do in Leviticus chapter 10, in verse 1. It says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and put incense on it. And he offered profane fire before the Lord. Now, some of you might have a King James. I think it says strange fire, profane fire. 
which he had not commanded them. So fire, no, this is God's response. Fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So I think it's important that we learn to worship the way God wants us to worship. But I'm grateful. This isn't how he deals with us today. Aren't you grateful? Because, I mean, there is an example in the New Covenant. I know this is Old Covenant, but there is an example in the New Covenant where in the early church, there was judgment immediately from God on two people. Remember their names? Ananias and Sapphira. What were they doing? They were offering strange worship, if you will, profane worship. How? Well, remember they sold a piece of land. And I believe they were impressed by a guy by the name of Barnabas who also sold a piece of land. And he brought all the proceeds in and gave it and laid it at the apostles' feet because God moved upon him to give in such a generous way. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they see this. They also sell a piece of land, but they conspire together to say that they're giving everything, but to keep things back for themselves. In essence, they came hypocritically as liars to worship God. Except that their lie wasn't just to Peter. And their lie wasn't just to the other apostles. And their lie just wasn't to the church family as a whole. That's not really what they were judged for. They were judged because the Bible says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And they didn't need to do that. Because God never told anyone to sell everything even to the church. There was never any kind of instruction to do that. He was obviously moving upon people in the Spirit to do, to do that. But they could have sold everything and given $5. or given, They could have given whatever the Lord had put on their hearts. But they wanted to be known. And boom, they were taken out slain in the spirit the example of slain in the spirit in the bible but they don't get up so i'm grateful that god doesn't do that today because if he did you'd have a new pastor every week because we all fail as a matter of fact you'd only probably make it a week and then a whole new church would come in say like, oh brand new it's all fresh and then bam, 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 man it all over the place and it would be very difficult but instead what did god do he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, coming to you and to me in our worst moment, not in our best, coming to us in our worst condition, not cleaned up and in order. Why? Because he loves us. The prescription of God in relationship today comes from love through this finished sacrifice and work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, that it was his blood that was slain for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. And certainly God has prerogative to deal with his children as however he desires to deal with his children. But I'm grateful that when he sees me and sees you, he sees us in Christ. It's such an important place to be. So you couldn't just come anytime and do your own thing. Nadab and Abihu, they, they showed that to the nation. And perhaps Aaron is a little hesitant now that he worships God the right way, you know, that he walks in the right way. And now the instruction comes, no, you tell Aaron this is what he's to do. And so notice in verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, pause right there for a second. Have any of you ever heard or used the phrase scapegoat in your life? It comes from right here. You'd be amazed when you're reading the Bible how many things, how many phrases are in the world today that come directly from the Bible. Now, it's used a little differently in the world than the Bible defines it, but we'll get to that in a moment. But there's two goats here. One is going to be offered up as a sacrifice, and one is going to be the scapegoat. Notice verse 9. 
And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, notice verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then, verse 12, he shall take the censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. It's a fascinating thing that once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in to the very Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was a small box. They would put a lid on it with two angels. The lid would be known as the mercy seat. And once a year, there would be the blood of the bull and the goat spread in the, hands of, in the hands of the priest. Now, it's interesting that the priest both comes in first with the sweetness in his hands, the incense, and the sweet smelling. And then with those very hands, he would then also take the blood and with his hands spread the blood on the mercy seat. This was a very messy, bloody day of sacrifice. It reminds us of a couple things, doesn't it? First of all, within the family of God, this is a messy place. And you need to understand that if a church is truly filled with men and women who love Jesus Christ and are born again, it's a very messy place because we've all come from different backgrounds and we've all come from different places and we all deal with different issues. And it is a misconception and it is a false expectation to think that the most holy, perfect place on the planet Earth is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not. You're surrounded with some really difficult people in this room. Did you know that? Give me an amen, because you're the difficult person I'm talking about, <laughs> myself included. We, we are men and women prone to sin, stumbling and falling, and it's a mess. And we need to learn by the grace of God to make room for the messes of others and to actually, God's calling some of you to step right into the difficulty of someone else. Not to stand there with some uh, hand of prejudgment or to look down on someone, but rather to give a brother a hand and help a sister up in the difficulties of their life. The church is a messy place, but the worship of God has always been a messy thing. Or you could even say a bloody mess. Because the only way that we can come together you know, if you think this is a bloody mess with the sacrifice of animals, imagine what the cross looked like. And the torturous difficulty, the, the difficult scene of the torture and the brutality. And, I mean, Jesus was beaten so bad that unless you knew him beforehand, the Bible says his face, or, you know, in the Old King James it says his visage, that, that his countenance, that his face was so mangled that unless you knew him, you wouldn't have recognized him. You wouldn't have known who he was. And so this worship in the tabernacle was a bloody mess. And it involved the hands. It was bittersweet. The sweetness of the incense and really the bitterness of death. That the price for the sin of the nation was the shed blood of a sacrificial animal. 
You see, when the high priest came in to the Holy of Holies, as only the high priest could once a year, something miraculous took place. And it wouldn't have been visible to the naked eye. As many of the times God working in our lives isn't visible to the naked eye. But something miraculous took place. There was a substitutionary offering. The bull, the blood of the bull for the sins of the people. Which again becomes a type and a picture of, and it makes sense now. It makes sense, doesn't it? When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he points toward him, he says, there he is. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here's the thing. The old covenant in Judaism, the sins of the people were just covered but not removed. So that every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to repeat this every year. And God would save the nation of old like he would save you today by faith. By faith. Even Abraham, before the law was even instituted, because of Abraham's faith, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And they would believe that this substitutionary blood would be the one element that God prescribed and required was offered and forgiveness came. And so it was very specific. And I I noticed that the atonement, which is really a word that speaks of substitutionary sacrifice. When you say atonement, it's like something offered in order to become made one. Matter of fact, you can use the word atonement and actually use it to remember what it means. At one meant. And it's the idea of becoming one with God. And that can only come through the shedding of blood. It couldn't come any other way. And so the high priest Aaron here would function in a way to worship God the way it was prescribed. He would enter into the very holy of holies and sprinkle the blood with his hands on the mercy seat seven times. The Ark of the Covenant was a small box with a lid on it and now would be covered in blood. And it's very significant. One of the things that was inside that box was the law, the testimony, reminding them of their failure to keep the law. You know, that's the purpose of the law. You could reduce the law even just to the Ten Commandments. And you're like, wow, okay, let's go through the Ten Commandments and see how good my life is doing. And, you know, by the time you get through a few, you're like, I failed. And that's the intent of the law. The intent of the law is to show us our own failure. It's like a mirror. It's not to condemn us, but to reveal to us we are unable to provide God that perfect sacrifice. I mean, look at it this way. The Bible says that if you've broken any law, you're a lawbreaker. And so we kind of measure things, though, in how bad I am compared to you. And so we go, well, you know, I'm pretty bad, but not as bad as you, as if that's okay, you're really in trouble. You're, I remember when I was invited to church, and I remember thinking, man, I'm bad. I, I, I admit I'm a bad person, but I'm not that bad that I need to go to church. I really believe that. It's like, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm pretty bad, but, you know, me and God are still okay. No, 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 no. I needed forgiveness. You need forgiveness. I'm here, I think God would help me to remind you, you are that bad. And so am I. And that's what the law shows us. And it was in the box to remind them. The law revealing a failure had the lid on it, the mercy seat, reminding you with the blood sprinkling on it of forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing. And this was an important part of the life. You could say this was the most important part of the life of the children of Israel. This would be the place where the high priest would come out and declare that the blood has been offered and that God has forgiven. This was significant. 
This is Abounding Grace with our Bible teacher and pastor, Ed Taylor. To give this a second listen, just go online to AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen through the Calvary Church app. You can search for Ed Taylor to download that today. We know we should study the Bible, but many Christians aren't sure how to go about it or they find it less than enjoyable. Well, we picked out a resource that can help. It's from Skip Heitzig, and the book is aptly titled, How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It. As the title would suggest, Pastor Skip will inspire you to enjoy studying the Bible as God intends and discover its power and relevance to your life. And we'll gladly send you a copy for a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Thank you for remembering us in your prayers and giving to the Lord. Your gift, whatever the size, will serve to help us reach thousands with the message of Christ. Reach us toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. Again, 877-30-GRACE. If you'd just like to make a donation and not interested in the pick of the month, you can just go online to AboundingGraceRadio.com. Connect with us through social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. There's a link to each page at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Well, we've got another study in Hebrews to look forward to tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. May God richly bless you with His Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.